Hello and welcome to Ag PhD Radio. I'm Darren Hefty. And I'm Brian Hefty. Thanks for joining us today. We are live from the Morton studio, broadcasting here, talking today about Bermuda grass. Now, you may not have Bermuda grass, but there are a few things we're going to go through today with just overall grass production that I'm sure will benefit you. And you can also give us a call here if you have anything else you would like to talk about that's going on in your farm right now, or if you have any questions for us, we would love to take your phone call, 844-44-AG-PHD. That's 844-442-4743. You can also email us, radio at agphd.com. We're going to get to your questions in the Ag PhD mailbag right now. It's the mailbag! All right, first one comes from Marion in Nebraska. He said, I've heard, heard you guys say that calcium in gypsum will not change the soil pH. So I'm wondering, what does it do? Also, does the sulfur make the soil more acidic? Okay, so, yep, uh, great questions. First of all, so we're, all right, let, let me step back here. Calcium sulfate is what gypsum is. It's calcium sulfate. Uh, so the calcium and what it does there, um, it's just calcium. It's already the element. It's just going to be there in your soil. That actually can help soil porosity a lot of times. Calcium is a super important nutrient for crops. So those are the things that calcium is going to do. And with sulfate, again, a nutrient for crop. It's already in the form the plant's going to use. That's all great. Okay. We can fuse sulfur for sulfate sometimes and and it's partly our fault sometimes too because we might say sulfur and we mean sulfate or vice versa but with elemental sulfur that has to break down in order to convert over to sulfate and for that to happen you're going to need oxygen you're going to need water and you're going to need soil bacteria and so when all those things happen with elemental sulfur in that process, hydrogen sulfate is produced. That's sulfuric acid. So when, when you think about that, what's sulfuric acid going to do to a pH? Yes, it's going to lower it. Uh, there's, there's going to be hydrogen that comes out of that. Now, I will say this. You have to make sure that you have good drainage in order for this to all occur because otherwise your elemental sulfur can turn to hydrogen sulfide, which will smell like rotten eggs in your soil. You have to have plenty of air there, otherwise the microbes can't do their job. The microbes are going to die. So that's the difference between sulfur and sulfate. Now, calcium versus calcium carbonate, it's kind of the same thing. There's going to be a reaction with calcium carbonate or lime, and over the course of that reaction, it's going to bind with free hydrogen in the soil that's causing your pH to go low. And it's going to basically take that hydrogen and you're going to end up with water. There's going to be carbon dioxide, there's going to be water, and there's going to be free calcium left. So what that's doing is it's literally pulling that free hydrogen out of your soil, turning it into water, and that's what's raising the pH. So calcium and calcium carbonate, two different things. Sulfur and sulfate, two different things. So that's that. That's where, I, I and again, I, it's probably partly our fault because we don't, fully explain that sometimes and occasionally we'll say one thing mean the other but those are the differences and that's why calcium sulfate gypsum does not change your ph all right thanks for the questions really appreciate that mary and this comes from lewis 
said, I got a question for you. I have a vacuum planter, and we're mixing a dry product called Quick Ritz at the planter box. Wondering if we should be concerned about some of the product being sucked off and lost due to the vacuum. Yeah. Almost any time you're going to have an inoculant, a seed box treatment, and quite frankly, even a lot of seed treatments, there will be dusting off. There's going to be stuff that goes up in the air. There's going to be stuff that falls in the box. That's just part of the deal. At the end of the day, honestly, I don't care how much is left in the box. What I care about is, do I make yield? Do I get a yield increase? Do I get a return on investment for the dollar that I've spent? And if you are getting that, then I won't get too worried about it. But I would say, I mean, ultimately the goal with all these products is to get as much of it in the ground as possible, not sitting in the bottom of your planter box at the end of, uh, or I mean, when you get everything emptied out. So yes, you want to be concerned about it, but by the same token, if most all of it ended up on the seed and in the ground and you got yield increase and you got return on investment, it's not that big a deal. All right. Thanks for the question, Lewis. Yeah, a lot of times they'll they'll put extra stuff in those exactly. dry products just knowing that they're going to lose some. So you often That's see right. dry inoculants or dry microbial products. Yep. They'll increase the bug counts in those dries. So if you are finding a way to deliver it and get that all down where you need it, We've seen better luck with right. those products than yeah. we have with some of the liquid alternatives. So it's been yep. it's kind of a neat trade off. So yeah, I, I don't like to see the dusting off issue either, but but uh, yeah, sometimes you just have to let the yield data speak for itself. Excellent point. All right, this comes from Michael. He said, "I'm in South Central Pennsylvania, and I just want you guys to know we want to see you keep all this great information coming." One downside, though, my local TV has now dropped RFD, in which we watched all your programs. So now we've got to either get the streaming service for RFD or try and find your content online. But just wanted to know we appreciated it. Hey, thanks, Michael. We we appreciate that too. Yeah, it's it's just crazy why uh, some of the, the local cable things are happening the way they're happening. But I, I get it. If you don't have RFD, they do. you're right. They do have a streaming service, and you can certainly get that. And you can also find some of our content online. Uh, agphd.com. Well. Yep, just go to agphd.com, and you can watch our shows there. All right, I uh, get one from Chris here, and it's ironic. Today we're going to be talking about Bermuda grass. Well, Chris wants to see more content about growing different grasses. He said, I'd love, especially like to see a cool season grass fertility video and also production expectations for moderate to low CEC levels. Yeah, and, and, and those are, are good comments. I would just say we do have some grasses on the Ag PhD Fertilizer Removal app. You can certainly go there and understand we want complete soil tests pulled even if it's grass i mean grass is a crop yeah, pastures grassland yes. grass yes. hay you can really treat it fairly similar and we do talk about that quite a bit on our show so look up some of the uh, grass and pasture type videos that we've put out there as well hey thanks for the comment chris we really appreciate that stay tuned we'll be right back you're looking for soybeans that give you the yield you want but when it comes to fighting your toughest weeds you also need flexibility Introducing Extend Flex Soybeans, Elite Genetics with triple tolerance to dicamba, glyphosate, and glufosinate. The yield you want, the choice you need. Learn more at extendflexsoy.com. Always read and follow IRM where applicable, grain marketing, and all other stewardship practices and pesticide label directions.
When it comes to leading herbicide formulations, you know New Farm. New Farm brings you Cheetah, a high-quality glufosinate herbicide made right here in the USA. Now for use on a wide variety of crops with glufosinate-resistant traits, including Enlist crops. Its novel mode of action will manage existing or emerging herbicide resistance and provide fast, effective results. This means you can focus more on profitability and less on weeds. New Farm and Cheetah Herbicide, here to help. Give your corn a strong defense against stress throughout the season with MycoApply Indoprime SC. MycoApply Indoprime SC uses four specially selected species of mycorrhizal fungi to protect your crop against stress. That means more access to water and key micronutrients while building a healthy soil structure for stronger crops for years to come. Stronger corn starts beneath the surface. Learn more about MycoApply Indoprime SC at IndoprimeCorn.com. Always read and follow label instructions. You're all set with the 4x4 turbo diesel truck. How about some options? Spray and bed liner? Absolutely. Tailgate step and nerf bars? Gotta have them. Tie down hooks and stainless steel toolbox? You know it. Tinted windows? Of course. Options are good. That's as true in the field as it is with your pickup. In addition to taking care of tough weeds, new Open Sky Herbicide gives you more rotational choices than ever before and an easy-to-handle formulation. <laughs> Gooseneck toe package? Yep. Discover more Open Sky details at openskyherbicide.com. Back, you're listening to Ag PhD Radio. We're broadcasting from the Morton studio today, and we're talking about Bermuda grass. We do get a lot of questions around Bermuda grass, and man, there's some great experts out there around the country too that we get a chance to talk to from time to time. So, got a few of those guys we want to bring on today. We got Rocky Lemus with us right now down at Mississippi State. Now, Rocky, the last picture I saw Mississippi State had snow everywhere. Is that snow still around down there? Well, we have been for about three days now with ice instead of more snow. We just got another ice storm last night, and so we're dealing with that. University have been closed all week. Wow. Yeah, you don't don't expect that. I know uh, uh, my son and I went down to uh, bug camp at Mississippi State a few years back, and, boy, that was the middle of the summer. There there was no ice around there. It was plenty hot, uh, but, but what a great experience. Now, one thing that I was thinking about here is we're talking Bermuda grass today. When you get that kind of weather and you get ice all over everything, what happens with some of this, uh, some of the grass that's out there? Well, you know, with usually the warm season perina grasses like Bermuda by hair grass, they're usually not very well impacted by ice like this because they are dormant right now. Uh, the only time that we see loose uh, in the stand of Bermuda grass if you have issues with fertility, if you have uh, pastures or hay fields that are very low in potassium or potassium deficiency, then we see issues where you start losing that because uh, those plants are not uh, conditioned to have a root system uh, prepared to hold these type of uh, cold weather temperatures. I'm glad you bring that up. We talk about this quite often uh, in our row crops, but it's just as important no matter what you're growing in the soil that you have fertility in plentiful supply and balanced. And you're right. You definitely can hurt stand that way. How about insect issues? Now, we see in turf grass situations certainly a lot of different problems that we can have with disease and insects. Is that a concern in Bermuda? It is, you know, we, we have three major things that, that uh, from the pest management uh, aspect that can impact Bermuda grass production. 
One of them is what we call leaf spot disease. Uh, it's a fungal disease. Uh, we see that usually in, 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 in the summer when we have um, a lot of rain, uh, high moisture content in the plant uh, can actually impact those issues. The two major insects that are very prompt to cause a lot of damage on Bermuda grass production. One of them is army worms, and we can get them uh, usually from May all the way through to the uh, October, uh, September. It depends on environmental conditions. Uh, I expect that with the condition that we have this year, a lot of the moths that carry uh, those uh, to maturity uh, in the spring might be uh, be suppressed by the uh, cold temperatures that we have had this year. Uh, another one that we've seen uh, in the last probably five, six years is what we call Bermuda grass stem maggot, and it's a fly. And the fly, what it does is lay the eggs at the tips of the uh, Bermuda grass plants. And when those uh, develop the uh, the instars of the uh, of the new caterpillars, they usually burrow through the uh, the top of the the, uh, the stem and actually kill the, the stem of the plant and suppress growth. What you actually start seeing it is that you end up with a with a Bermuda grass feel like look like it has been hit by frost, and it's because of the damage caused by the Bermuda grass stem maggot. Yeah, those kinds of pests that burrow into the stem are really challenging. We're seeing those in a lot of different crops, in soybeans, in wheat, and and uh, obviously we've had that in corn for a long time. What is what is the treatment for that? How do you stop Bermuda grass stem maggots? Well, you know, because we try to control the fly, that's what we try to do first. You know, some of the uh, insecticide that we use, like a mustard mag, the pyrotroids, uh, type of uh, insecticide they that they control the uh, the actual the um, um, the uh, this the uh, fly it's gonna be also controlled while we control the army worms so some of the herbicide the insecticide that we can use for controlling army worms can also be used for controlling uh, the flies one thing that is very important that we recommend to producers to do if if you already have damage from the Bermuda grass stem maggot, we tell them to go ahead and cut that field, cut the losses, and then come back within seven days and do an application of the pyrotroid, and you can come back seven days again and do another application. That gives you enough time to break out of that uh, hay or grazing restriction that you might have with those insecticides. Great tips. We're talking with Rocky Lemus down at Mississippi State. Rocky, thank you so much. Really appreciate all the information today, and good luck. Hopefully warmer weather is on the way soon. Uh, it's coming. It's, it's going to be on, this, on the upper 50s and 60 here in the next couple of days, so we'll look forward to that. You and bet. thank you for having me. You bet. Thanks, Rocky. Uh, let's head uh, over to North Carolina State. We've got Fred Yelverton with us right now. Fred, thanks for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me. All right, Rocky was getting into some of the, the pest problems that we have in Bermuda grass. How about weed control? Do we have some good options there? And what are the challenging weeds to stop in a Bermuda grass stand? Well, uh, I work in both, both turf grasses and forage crops, so I just need, just for the listeners, we need to make sure we are uh, distinguishing between uh, weed control and Bermuda grass grown for forages or Bermuda grass grown for turf grasses. So you're talking about forages, if I'm correct, right? Is you know what? We can, we, can, we can definitely talk about each one of those. I, I appreciate that you bring up that okay. difference because you're right. We, we, do, we should talk about both. Okay, we can do that. Um, 
so absolutely. Let's talk about forages here for a second. Um, and, and, you know, forages and turf grasses, even though it's Bermuda grass, they're really the, the weed control uh, problems are really quite different. Of course, in turf grasses, uh, Bermuda grass, in this, at least in the southern tier of states, all the way over to California, uh, you know, all the way over to, say, the Mid-Atlantic, Maryland, et cetera. Um, if you draw a line kind of across the country south of there, Bermuda grass is grown as a turf grass species in sports fields, golf courses, roadsides. Uh, we could go on and on. Um, so in those types of situations, uh, we have a, a host of uh, of Yep. Did we lose you, Fred? Oh, sorry, sorry there. You, I, yeah, I, you cut out for just yeah, a second. For, yeah, yeah. I, I'm sorry. So um, uh, we have a host of, of weed problems in turf grass situations. Uh, whether we're talking, but you know, crabgrass and goosegrass are kind of a, a mainstay of problems uh, in those uh, Bermuda grass turf situations. Um, goosegrass gaining a little bit of, uh, ground in terms of becoming more prevalent. It always has been a problem. Crabgrass has always been there. So that's two weeds that we typically use pre-emergence herbicides for. Uh, and then we have a lot of sedges. You know, sedges are plants that love wet soils, um, waterlogged soils. They tend to thrive in those situations. So anytime you throw irrigation into the, into the mix, you're going to have more problems with sedges. We have about eight or ten species of sedges that we deal with in turf grasses, whereas in forages, you know, we're mostly dealing with uh, yellow nut sedge and purple nut sedge. So those are the two species that predominate, uh, that are or that are the most dominant in, in those types of situations. Now, if we move over to forages, you know, crabgrass is always a problem in, in, in forage, a Bermuda grown for forage crops. You know, the, it's kind of interesting. Uh, crabgrass has a pretty high, it's, it's, it's not a bad grass to feed to, to livestock. The problem when you put it into hay is it dries at a different rate than, than Bermuda grass or even fescue or those types of grasses you grow for forages. So the main problem there is not so much the, the forage quality of crabgrass. It's just that it's a, it's a problem with uh, hay and, and drying the hay down. Um, and then you just get into a whole, you know, a plethora of weed problems in the wintertime uh, with both forages and turf grasses because Bermuda, uh, unless you're really south, like South Florida or South Texas or somewhere south, very southern part of, of California, uh, Bermuda grass goes dormant in the winter or semi-dormant, and that makes it less competitive which means that you're going to have more weed problems in wintertime. You know, Fred, we were just talking with Rocky Lemus about, hey, that dormancy is kind of a good thing when you get ice and cold weather like we've had. Hey, Fred, can you hang on for just a minute? We'd love to talk to you about some of the control solutions that, that you're having success with in Bermuda grass. We'll be right back after this. Customer service goes a long way when trying something new. Ryan Shaw from Michigan shares how Soil Warrior helped him transition to strip tillage in his operation. 
the Soil Warrior guys, they are amazing to work with. They made this jump in this transition extremely painless. It, one question that I get all the time is, how is the service and everything? And I said, well, actually, I get better service from them than I typically do my dealers uptown. They're just amazing. More info at SoilWarrior.com. It takes a team to beat resistant weeds. Experts agree using multiple herbicides with alternate modes of action increases your chances of beating resistant weeds. Tough 5EC is a selective, contact herbicide for post-emergence control of broadleaf weeds, especially herbicide-resistant strains. Tough 5EC is a perfect teammate, having a synergistic effect with HPBD inhibitors and enhances products in the PS2 group. Make Tough 5EC part of your winning team. Ask your local retailer about Tough 5EC or visit BelchamUSA.com. Always read and follow label instructions. A lot goes into keeping a precision operation moving. The inputs you choose have to deliver results. New Delaro Complete Fungicide from Bayer offers unmatched consistency and the most complete disease control available. Your corn and soybeans are protected and yields higher, even in unpredictable conditions. With Delaro Complete, you get results you can count on to help keep your precision operation running smoothly. Always read and follow label instructions. To learn more, visit delarocomplete.us today. You need a powerful herbicide to fight the war on weeds. Bellum is Rotam North America's mesotrion herbicide, and it fights against the annual broadleaf weeds attacking your cornfields. Winning this battle means higher yields, lower cost to you, and maximized profitability. For long-lasting residual weed control, check out Evinco, Vilify, and our newest mix, Rixa. For application, flexibility, and season-long control, that's Evinco, Vilify, and Rixa, powered by Bellum. For more information, visit bellumherbicide.com. That's B-E-L-L-U-M herbicide.com. Wherever you go, whatever you're doing, whenever you want. Farm your way with Case IH AFS Connect. Now you can farm, share data, and manage your fleet however, whenever, and wherever you want. Learn more at caseih.com slash farmyourway. Precision crop nutrition pays. And AgroLiquid has precisely what it takes to help you succeed. The right products plus the right expertise to give you guidance based on your soils, your fields, and your goals. While our clean, seed-safe formulations and lower application rates make planter fertilizer easier than ever. AgroLiquid. Apply less. Expect more. Find a retailer at agroliquid.com. Welcome back. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio. We're broadcasting from the Morton studio today, and our phone lines are open at 844-44-AG-PHD. Man, we've had some great guests on today, and we, we were bringing Fred Yelverton back here with North Carolina State University. He's on just before the break talking to us about some of the weed problems that we have in Bermuda grass. Now, Fred, you mentioned using some prees to try to take out things like crabgrass and, and goosegrass. How effective are the prees in Bermuda grass, and what active ingredients are being used? Well, in forage crops, uh, it's a pretty small list for pre-emergence. Uh, there's really basically only one, and there's some state restrictions on this, so I would encourage people to, to consult with their local guidelines in terms of what is registered in the state. But most states now have pendimethalin. Uh, registered as a pre-emergence for Bermuda grass uh, forage crops. 
Now, we need to talk about that a little, a little bit because pentamethalin is a great pre-emergence herbicide. People that grow field crops have known this product for a long, long time. Sure. Uh, and they know it's, hi- it's highly efficacious for, uh, you know, for, for crabgrass and, and a little less so on goosegrass, but it's pretty good on goosegrass, but excellent on crabgrass. Now, the, the, the issue with pentamethalin and forage Bermuda is that it, it needs to be, pentamethalin is not what we would call highly volatile, but it is in the moderately volatile category. Now, what do we mean by that? Well, if we put it out, if we spray it and on, on Bermuda forage crop and we don't get it watered in relatively soon, we will lose some efficacy. So in forage crops, assuming that you're not going to irrigate it at, at, at that time of the year, and we'll get to that in just a second, it needs to be carefully timed with uh, you know, a rainfall because it's not activated until it's watered in. And if it lays out there on, you know, in the, in the, in the soil for, or on the forage crop for a week or two, you can lose as much as 50% of the efficacy. So that's a big issue uh, with forage crops. The other thing I will mention to you is, you know, crabgrass germinates a lot earlier than uh, uh, most people realize. Crabgrass germinates when we have a three to four day 24-hour mean soil temperature of about 55 degrees. Now, that was a mouthful. Let me restate it. A three to four day, 24-hour mean soil temperature of about 55 degrees. Now, let me tell you when that, and I'll, you know, we'll have to put some that depending on where you are geographically. That's going to vary quite a bit. But if you want to look at Raleigh, North Carolina, we'll just use that as a at where I am as, as kind of a, you know, benchmark there, that's going to occur about March 10th to March 15th, somewhere along in those lines. That's about a 10 year average of when that occurs, maybe March 20th, but somewhere in there. Sure. So what does that mean? That means you've got to get it out prior to that. So really even for Raleigh, North Carolina, we recommend that producers go out March one. And, uh, you know, use that as a timeline to get it out because you got to get it watered in. Because if you get crabgrass emerged, these products, they're pre-emergence herbicide. Pentamethalin is a pre-emergence herbicide. So we really have to get those products out in a timely manner. And that catches a lot of people off guard that it germinates that early. It, it catches people off guard who are traditionally producing field crops because, you know, if you plant in April or May, that's when you put down your pre-emergence herbicide. Well, right. you know, Bermuda grass is a perennial crop, so it's going to, it, it germinates, you know, with, you don't, you're not planting it every year. Hopefully you're not planting it every year. And, um, you know, you have to get the product out early and water it in. So forage crops, that's a big one. Uh, in terms of put, applying it early and, and getting it watered in. In terms of an early post-emergence herbicide in Bermuda grass, we have a product called Pastora uh, that can be used post-emergence to control crabgrass and goosegrass in forage Bermudas. Uh, but again, I'm going re- to emphasize, re-emphasize, it has to go out when crabgrass is about, you know, less than really about... Uh, two inches tall, or maybe one to two tillers. And that is early. Uh, that Those products are most effective when they go out on small crabgrass. So again, when would that be? Well, it depends on where you are, but you're probably looking at an April application 
for many of your listeners. So, you know, you really have to keep an eye on it if you're going post-emergence uh, to make sure you get the product out early. So that kind of summarizes it for, for forage Bermuda. Uh, now, when we go over the Bermuda grown for turf grasses, we have a lot more products available uh, Unfortunately, unfortunately Fred, they're not as cheap as what the, the forage options often are. It seems like those turf products, they, they really like to charge for those. <laughs> they tend to be a little more expensive, <laughs> but in the, in the, uh, the post-patent world, many of them have come down. Oh, you know, that's, you've got pendimethylin, and, and you've got prodiamine, which used to be called barricade, uh, and it still is barricade, but it's, it's post-patent now. Uh, then you've got other products. So you got Dimension, uh, which is dithiopyr. It's a similar type uh, dinitroalanin. It's not a dinitroalanin, but it kind of has the same mode of action. Not kind of. It does have the same mode of action. And then you've got products like uh, Ronstar. Uh, they are very popular on athletic fields and golf courses. Uh, that product is uh, for for various reasons. One is it's very good on goose grass. Um, and then we have a uh, you know, we have uh, some other pro- miscellaneous products. A Spectacle is a new one uh, that has, well, relatively new, came out, come out in the last, oh, I'd say five or so years, uh, which is very, very good on goosegrass and, and also pretty good on crabgrass. So you have a lot more options in, um, in turfgrass, Bermuda-grown as, as a turfgrass species, than you do in forage crops. And to your point, uh, the products that are not, all patent or post-patent, they're still pretty pricey, at least compared to the uh, forage crop herbicides. Hey, Fred, uh, great talk. You know, the knocking a grass out in a grass crop is a challenge. And I, one of the points that I just wanted to reiterate that Fred made is, man, you got to be timely on this stuff, either with the pre-emerge or with that post, getting it out there before that thing tillers all out and gets big because, man, it, it's really tough to get good control after that point. Uh, Fred, thank you so much. Well, for- to your – Oh, good. I was No, I was just going to say, to your point, uh, I've been working in, in extension uh, – uh, for a long time in, in th- these areas. That is the number one issue for lack of efficacy. It's not the product. It is a incorrect timing. So just right. to reiterate your point there. You bet. Hey, uh, one last thing here, Fred, uh, the sedges. And you'd mentioned that, that sometimes you have trouble with yellow and purple nut sedge especially. Is there an active ingredient right. there that you like the best? Well, Or a timing, or a timing, I should say. Yes. Well, that's a good point. Uh, basically, what you want to do with sedges, and we'll talk about products here in just a second, but the timing needs to be when the products are, when, excuse me, when the weed is fully merged, but early in the year before it starts to produce tubers. Okay. In other words, if you, if, you, if, if, you, if you let a set like purple or yellow nut sedge grow all year, and let's say you treat it in August, it's already produced millions of new tubers, so your patch keeps getting bigger and bigger every year, right? Yes. Because you produced all these new tubers. So basically what you need to do is when the sedges come up in the spring and purple comes up before yellow, uh, it purple is an early emerging sedge. When it comes up in, say, April, again, depending on where you are, uh, April or May, and, and that's when you need to treat it when the when the plant is fully emerged, 
Gotcha. Emerged, um, but before those it, tubers develop. Hey, Fred, we got just about thirty. We got about thirty seconds. Active ingredients. You got any favorites? Uh, well, in forages, it's going to be permit. Uh, that's permit. about the, all, all you have. And turf grasses, you've got a lot of these ALS inhibitors like uh, Monument. You've got, uh, you know, you you, you also have uh, the same active ingredient that's in uh, permit uh, halo sulfuron. You have that. Uh, you got you got halo sulfur. Yeah, you got halo sulfuron, uh, which is which is uh, post patent and turf. Uh, and then you've got several others. You've got uh, sulfentrazone formulations that we use in turf. Yeah, so we've got I, you know, there, yeah, there are a lot of choices there. We've, we've been using halo sulfuron quite a bit. Um, Fred, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Very, very uh, good description of some of these weeds and, and our options for control. When we come back, we're going to talk about fertilizer and how to take care of that Bermuda grass crop. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio. You deserve to have a building that will last for generations. With more than 110 years of experience and thousands of satisfied customers, Morton Buildings is the industry leader you can trust. Unlike other construction companies, you work with Morton Buildings craftsmen. From conception to completion, there's no better time to buy. Lock in your new building for 2020 today. Contact your local Morton sales office or visit mortonbuildings.com. The Pentair Hypro Express Flush Valve reduces plug nozzles and improves cleanout of your spray boom. Simply flush boom sections with a quarter turn ball valve and leave your tools in the cab. Plus, installation is easy. Simply remove the existing end cap plug and replace with the Hypro Express Flush Valve. Learn more at pentair.com slash hypro. Start your crop off right with the Germinator Closing Wheel from Farm Shop MFG. Our spike design excels on variable soils and shatters compaction. Plus, the unique shoulder firmer encases a seed to maximize seed-to-soil contact. Order yours at farmshopmfg.com. Did you know soybean diseases like white mold and sudden death syndrome can survive in your soil even after rotating crops? Prevention of these diseases is a constant battle and yield loss from an infection can be devastating. The right management plan makes all the difference. Keep your beans safe this spring with Heads Up Seed Treatment. Heads Up guards your seed from both white mold and SDS. Stay protected and profitable by asking your seed dealer for Heads Up. Learn more at headsupst.com. Heat, drought, wind, hail, northern corn leaf blight, gray leaf spot. If your corn is under stress, you are too. Get Veltima fungicide, swift activity, with fast payback, an expanded application window. Makes life simple, and it's a secure choice. With powerful residual for visibly healthier corn. Swift, simple, secure. Veltima fungicide. Call your BASF rep today. Always read and follow label directions. Veltima fungicide is not registered in all states. No matter what time of the year it is on your farm, with a Bayer Plus Rewards program, earning and redeeming rewards are always in season. Because when you buy two or more eligible seed or crop protection products throughout the year, you earn $3 per acre in cashback rewards. Cash you can redeem and reinvest in your farm later in the season. That's Bayer Plus Rewards, and that's how we're helping make every part of your season, well, rewarding. Visit MyBayerPlus.com to learn more. See program terms and conditions for full details. It's not about how quickly you come out of the gate with nitrogen fertilizer, but how strong you finish the race. High Striker uses patent-pending chemistry to stabilize your nitrogen in a form that lasts longer in your crop's root zone. Because for high yields, your nitrogen must last longer, so you can finish the season stronger. Visit agrotechusa.com to learn why so many growers are going the distance with High Striker treated nitrogen. 
listening to Ag PhD Radio. Thanks for joining us today. We're talking Bermuda grass on the show today. And one of the first comments that Rocky Lemus with Mississippi State made is, you know what? If you have fertility issues out there, it's going to hurt your stand in Bermuda grass. And I think he's right on the money. We're real happy to have Glendon Harris with us right now at the University of Georgia to talk a little about fertility and Bermuda grass. Glendon, thanks for joining us. Oh, you're welcome. Good to be with you. You know, when when we think about grasses and fertility, a lot of times uh, growers that we talk to want to focus on nitrogen, but I'm sure there's a lot more to the program than just nitrogen. No, that's exactly right. In fact, uh, when I do cattle cattle meetings, et cetera, you know, I think we have a tendency, we know we we like to put nitrogen on and make things turn green, make them grow. But uh, really, two other key things that that you've got to think about are um, pH and potassium. Um, and you mentioned uh, thinning out a stand. If you really want to thin out a stand of Bermuda grass in the southeast, just don't put any potassium on, and, and you, that's what's going to happen. You know, it's it's neat that you mentioned that. We we get talked, well, actually I'd say Brandon and I get accused of we must own a potassium mine somewhere because we talk about that a lot. But we look at a lot of soil tests. We get soil tests sent to us from all over. I'm amazed at how many are really low on K. Yeah, well, it, and we're in an interesting situation down here in southeast and, and south Georgia on the coastal plain soil. Our soils are not very good, not compared to the Midwest, as you know, Um we're, we're, we're acidic, we're low CC, low organic matter. People say, how can you even grow anything? Um, but, you know, it, it just makes it just makes liming and, and irrigating and fertilizing that much more important. And our soils don't hold a lot of K either. So we really got to be careful. And, and we, we, soil, we recommend soil sampling, sampling row crops every year. And uh, the two things that I've noticed that will drop on us the fastest on these kind of low buffered soils, again, are, are pH and potassium. Okay, so talk to us a little bit. What is your goal? What is your target on the pH that you want to be to? Is it in the sixes or is it a little different range? Yeah, our, our official, University of Georgia's official recommendation is is 6.0. You don't want to go below a 6.0. Um, you know, I like between 6 and 6.5, but, you know, 6.0 on uh, Bermuda grass is a little more forgiving than some other things, I think, in pH-wise, but... Uh, as long as you don't go below 6.0, and of course, once you get down to 5.5 and below, aluminum comes available and it's toxic to most plants, and that's when you really start getting into trouble. And, uh, you know, we're probably not, we're, we're starting to grid sample on variable rate, things like lime and potassium on our row crops, our cotton and our peanuts uh, down here, but we probably don't do that much on our forages. Um, but But maybe that's where we need to go to make really good forages is to, is to you know use that technology to take care of those kind of problems you bet you bet okay talk to us a little bit about the potassium then is there how do you recommend potassium is there a soil amount you want to see on the soil sample is there a number of pounds you recommend applying each year what is the best way to do it on those lighter soils yeah um definitely um you know our our soil testing lab works like a lot of others um you take the soil test we use a uh, appropriate extractant for us, it's a Malik 1 extractant. Again, for Midwest, it's probably going to be something like Malik 3 or something. Um, but you get an index number, and then that you know that's correlated to field research. So when you have that, that, that index number, how much potassium to put out. Interesting thing on, on, on Bermuda grass, um, especially for hay, um, we recommend split applications of potassium uh, for a couple reasons. Um, 
So we like to put half the recommendation on at planting and then or uh, at green up uh, in the spring, and then the other half in the later summer. And two reasons for that: one is is uh, Bermuda grass will luxury consume potassium. If it's there, it'll take it up even beyond what it needs. So the later cuttings won't have any. And then you also want to put it on that split application. So um, potassium is known to help you get through the winter and winter kill. And we don't have a lot of freezing weather down here where we are, but uh, we do go below freezing. Um, and we've had a particular kind of cold and wet winter this year, to be honest with you. Um, so that's why we split potassium on Bermuda grass. Okay. One now we we started off talking just a little bit about nitrogen, but I would assume that's going to be a split application too. Are you seeing that happening multiple yeah. times throughout the season? Yeah, definitely. Um, and of course, you know, pastures and hays are different, but uh, if we focus on Bermuda grass for hay, you know, we say to to split it up, and if you knew you were going to get four cuttings, you would you would basically apply it you know, accordingly split it up. And our recommendation is actually as high as 400 pounds. Um, so four cuttings would be 100 pounds per cutting. Um, and, and that's how we like to split it up is to actually put about 100 pounds on when the when a crop greens up in um, in early April down here. And then after your first cutting, put another 100 pounds on. And, you know, technically, if we get through a dry period and you're not irrigated, you might only get three cuttings. You can, you know, probably only need 300 pounds. Um, but that's kind of our rough our rough goal and then if you do get 400 or four cuttings you know you want to be on that upper end because if you back off you're just not going to make as much grass sure sure now i know a lot of growers are talking about putting on sulfur at the same time as nitrogen in some of the row crops are they doing that in the forages as well now it's funny you mentioned that because i actually do work row crops more i work a lot with cotton and corn and peanuts down here and sulfur is a big issue um not so much on on bermuda grass um, in fact, we've actually had some byproducts, and I deal with all kinds of byproducts as fertilizers. Uh, we got a lot of things coming out of uh, pulp, um, paper mills, and of course, we use a lot of chicken litter. Um, but we can almost get into trouble with having too much sulfur on some of our Bermuda grass. So uh, I, I'm not even sure we, I don't even think we have an official recommendation. Row crops, we have a, a 10 pounds of sulfur per acre recommendation, but I don't even think we recommend uh, officially recommend sulfur on Bermuda grass in, in South Georgia. Yeah, it's been interesting to see how some of those recommendations have changed just with just with our clean air and those types of things. I know my brother always complains about this, Glendon, that he actually has to buy sulfur now, that he isn't getting it with acid <laughs> rain and pollution and those things. Well, I don't know. I, I much prefer it this way, but I don't mind spending a little bit of money on sulfur from time to time, but just something I like to tease him about. Uh, hey, Glendon, anything else on, on Bermuda grass that we haven't talked about that we should know? Um, I mean, we hit, uh, we hit the big ones, um, you know, soil testing and, and pH and, and NP and K. Um, actually I want to make a comment back to your sulfur thing. Um, I don't know if you knew this or not, but of course, you know, there's cold burning coal, um, power plants. They're scrubbing that sulfur out. And that's why your brother, whoever's not getting it anymore. Um, we actually use that material. It ends up being uh, calcium sulfate or gypsum. And that's what we use as a calcium source on our peanuts. Okay. So oh, we actually take that material. They they use lime, calcium carbonate, and they they put it in that system and scrub the sulfur dioxide out of those uh, coal burning power plants, and then it comes out as calcium sulfate. We can use that as a as a fertilizer. Oh, very interesting, uh, Glendon. This has been really good. We really appreciate having you on. Maybe we'll have to talk to you about cotton and corn and peanuts sometime down the road too. That'd be great. Anytime. 
You bet. Well, thanks a lot. You're welcome. Take care. All right, Brian, a lot of things here to, to unpack with Bermuda grass, but you know, it, it comes back to uh, the same thing that we would say with almost anything that we're growing. We got to start with good soil tests. We got to try and get balanced fertility out there. And then we manage the, the pest problems that we've got, whether it's insects, disease, or weeds. And if we do those things, we can max tonnage, we can max yields, and we can max profitability. Yeah. And I'm glad you guys were talking about potassium quite a bit there because I think the focus quite often with grass production is nitrogen, nitrogen, nitrogen. And I'm not saying that isn't super important. It is. But you got to look at potassium. You got to look at sulfur, even some of the micronutrients. That can really make a difference. And so I'm just saying, rather than spending 10 more dollars on nitrogen, if you spent five more dollars on nitrogen and five more on a bunch of other nutrients, maybe you could get better overall grass production. So I think it's important to look at soil tests. I think it's important to look at plant tissue analysis. Um, quite often, too, we end up talking about rise up smart grass, you know, gibberellic acid in the spring and the fall when the weather's cold to boost your tonnage in those situations. I mean, there are a lot of things that can be done if you start treating your grass like a crop. Instead of your grass, like um, this thing that's not a crop and, oh, I just, I got to take care of my pastures or this, you know, forage stuff, whatever. Yeah, it's, it's a minor deal for me. I don't care. I mean, care. You can absolutely make a difference. I often say to people here in South Dakota, I really honestly believe every rancher could double production of grass if you took just a few extra steps for fertility, for gibberellic acid, for better weed control, lots of things that can be done. All right, we're going to get to your questions in the Ag PhD mailbag again right after this. It's about time. Time for unprecedented season-long foliar disease protection. Formulated for a convenient at-plant application, new first-of-their-kind Inferro Zyway brand fungicides deliver complete inside-out protection from day one. From root to tassel, stalk to leaf. From planting through harvest. The active ingredient, Flutriophol, moves from the soil through your plants as your corn grows. Change the way you approach foliar disease protection from the start with first-of-their-kind Inferro Zyway 3D and Zyway LFR fungicides, available only from FMC. Zyway brand fungicides qualify for the exclusive agronomic and economic incentives of the FMC Freedom Pass program. Visit your FMC retailer or zyway.ag.fmc.com to learn more. Always read and follow all label directions. AgroLiquid is precision crop nutrition. That means being committed to product performance, to research and field testing, and to superior agronomics. Most of all, AgroLiquid is committed to delivering precisely the right nutrition in the right way including seed-safe planter plus side dress applications and foliar applications with low burn risk. AgroLiquid. Apply less. Expect more. Find a retailer at agroliquid.com. Give your corn a strong defense against stress throughout the season with MycoApply Indoprime SC. MycoApply Indoprime SC uses four specially selected species of mycorrhizal fungi to protect your crop against stress. That means more access to water and key micronutrients while building a healthy soil structure for stronger crops for years to come. Stronger corn starts beneath the surface. Learn more about MycoApply Indoprime SC at IndoprimeCorn.com. Always read and follow label instructions. 
As a little girl, I always wanted to run the combine because it meant I was helping dad. And dad always said, farmers are helpers. I'm teaching that to my daughters, that farmers help our family, our neighbors, and our community. It's what I do at work. I help farmers get the equipment they need. My name is Kim. I'm a farmer, and I work for Case IH. Case IH, built by farmers. We now bring you an important news bulletin. This just in from Live Action News. Innovation has come to the world of Burndown. New Elevore herbicide controls your toughest weeds, even glyphosate and ALS-resistant weeds like mare's tail and henbit. Talk with your retailer about Elevore herbicide today and ask how you can start elevating your burndown. Welcome back to Ag PhD Radio. Brian Hefty here along with my brother Darren. Today we've been talking about Bermuda grass, but we're jumping back into mailbag questions now. We got one from Geronimo, and here is his question. He said he's considering putting fertilizer on both sides of the row, and his son doesn't think it's worth it. <laughs> he does. <laughs> Can we weigh in on our opinion? So here's what I'd say, Geronimo. Uh, and by the way, he's from Indiana. If you are trying to put on a lot of fertility, then putting it on both sides of the row is a good idea. If you're trying to put on two gallons or three gallons of fertility, I don't think it's going to be worth it for you to spend the extra money on putting it on both sides. The reason why a lot of the high yield farmers end up talking about fertility on both sides of the row is what? Light soil. So in other words, the crop's going to be more sensitive in light soil than it is in heavy soil. So you have to be careful about how much you're putting in in any given spot. And the second thing is, going for higher yields, you do what? You put on more fertilizer. So, yes, we're big believers in putting it on both sides of the row if you're doing quite a bit. If you are just doing a little, one side of the row will be fine. Now, for us on our farm, when we're doing quite a bit and we want to band it, what we end up doing is we'll do some with the planter and we'll do some with strip-till. So then we're placing it probably eight inches below where we plant the seed. So that's kind of how we get around that thing. So no, we do not have it on both sides of the row. We have done that in the past. Back when we were putting on a lot of fertility, a lot of our fertility with the planter, we did have coulters on both sides of the row. And we do like that for big doses. All right. Thanks for the question, Geronimo. And hey, Geronimo, come on, man. We don't want to get in between you and your son in this big debate here. But uh, yeah, it's it's kind of fun, though, when you have some differing ideas just to be able to vet those out and think about, all right, how much is it going to cost? What's our potential gain here? Uh, I know Brandon and I don't always agree on those things either, but it's kind of fun just to, to think through, okay, I never would have considered that before if you wouldn't have come up with the idea. So good luck to you. This one from Tex, and Tex is in northern Indiana. So my question for you is about bean chemicals. And I got a few different things here. He said, on about half of my soybean acres, I've got cereal rye growing, and I'd like to let it grow as long as possible. <laughs> my, yep. my plan is to spray dicamba on this ground in early to mid-March, then mid-April spray my residual chemicals of Valor, Metribuzin, and Prowl. I'll plant the beans around the 20th of April. Wait, where is he from? Northern Indiana. Oh, okay. 
And when the beans get to the cotyledon stage to about V1, at that point I like to kill the cereal rye, and I'm using Roundup, Buterac, and Zidua. And uh, I don't know if it makes any difference or not, but these are plenish soybeans. All right. What, I, don't, what, I don't know that it really matters what, what kind of soybeans they are well, necessarily. Wait. But. Yeah, but those aren't tolerant to dicamba, so how are you going to spray dicamba in mid-March? And well, how, how are you going to put Buterac? I mean, Buterac's not so bad, but I don't know what Rady's using, but Buterac's 2,4-D. Well, so I don't love that either. Mid-March, you are quite a ways out in front. I don't know why yeah, you need but, the dicamba in mid-March. You but. are, but, I mean, that ground's cold. You're not going to get rid of that dicamba. I'd really worry. There's no. Let's put it this way. There's not a chance in the world that I would put dicamba out in front of my beans if they were not dicamba tolerant. No way, no how. I'm not even going to spray it in the fall. I wouldn't do that. That's too risky in my book. So, and and why are why are we doing that anyway? I mean, what what what's he trying to kill at that point? Doesn't say what the weeds are. Now, I do like okay. the three pre's. I like the Valor, Metribuse, and Prowl. And if it was me, I think I'd just throw my Roundup in right at that stage and try and get everything taken care of in one shot. Me too. Yep, I would do the same thing. The concern for us is how big that cover crop is going to be by the time you actually hit it with Roundup. And then are you going to kill it all? And then how much moisture have you removed from the soil? So, I mean, they're, they're just, there are a few concerns. You can certainly do it the way you're talking. The only thing that I, I know for sure that I would cut is that dicamba in mid-March. If you want to use something instead, then use even 2,4-D. 2,4-D would not last as long in the soil as dicamba would, but the dicamba would really worry me. And like I said, there's no possible chance I would do that in front of my beans in Indiana. It's it's too risky. We got enough risk already in farming. Nope. I uh, I agree. We want to try and minimize risk. And certainly when you get a crop that you're looking to get an extra premium on too, you definitely right. want to ding that up. You want to have as many bushels as you can. All right. I uh, got this one from Chad and he said, I was, I was watching your Ag PhD TV program and I caught a discussion about your copper to phosphorus ratio of 30 or 40 phosphorus to Phosphorus to copper ratio. Yes. <laughs> we don't want 30 times uh, copper to one part Correct. phosphorus. Correct. That, that, that'd he be real I, problematic. Anyway, go he ahead. He said, I've got some ground that has 80 parts per million of phosphorus and my copper is at 6.5 parts per million. I'm wondering, is this going to be a problem and we, how should yeah, we try to deal with this? Yeah, Brian, we, you, you, we, we you, answered that a couple of days ago. You did for the magazine. You have not. Oh, really? Oh, okay. Yep, you oh, nice and good catch there, Darren. Yeah, so I, I got that. We got the question, and right away I typed something up. And, yeah, Darren's memory is apparently a lot better than mine. I thought that we answered that for here, but I actually answered that in the next. It must be Ag PhD magazine. But, anyway, I'll just say this. The, the problem with copper and excess copper is you can't get it lower real fast because a big crop of corn, beans, wheat, anything, how much copper are you actually going to remove in any given year? So my point is if you say, well, I'm at 6.5 copper, so now I got to multiply that times 30 and raise my phosphorus to that. I don't really want you getting your phosphorus level up to 250 just because you're trying to deal with this copper situation. So what we have found is you start getting that down to less than 10 to 1, and it, it, it be, you begin to go backward on yield. But anyway, here's, here's where I'm going with this whole thing. If you look at 250 bushel corn, the grain removal for copper is 0.12 pounds. 
So if you have 6.5 parts per million, that's 13 pounds. So if you say, let's see, what was it, 0.12? <laughs> that's going to take you a lot of years to get that down to kind of a normal range where we might consider in the two to four parts per million, something like that. But nevertheless, I wouldn't get that worried about it. Just make sure you're keeping your phosphorus up. Don't be getting your phosphorus too low. Uh, if it if it was me and like on our farm, we're typically shooting for 100 parts per million on phosphorus anyway. So just continue to fertilize with phosphorus every year. Just don't skip it and and quit putting on more copper. Try not to get more copper out there and then you'll be in good shape. All right. Thanks for the question. This is from Charlie in Minnesota. Now the first uh, page or two is the field that he's really interested in, the Matson field. Oh, wow. We got uh, a lot of tests here. Yeah. So just first page or two. Okay. He, he said, I, I took one acre grids on many of my fields this fall, but I've got this one particular field that's concerning for me. It always produces fairly well, but as you can see, it, it's definitely got some room for improvement. I'm wondering where you would start to improve fertility in this field since there are so many different nutrient levels that are low. Uh, and also, I have access to water treatment lime, and I can spread that still this winter to try to help on the sure. pH and the calcium. Okay, the first thing is, I don't care if you do one acre grids, five acre grids, or 10 acre grids, in that you're going to create a bunch of data and you now have to manage it and that can feel overwhelming, especially when you first get going. I have, I don't even know what this is, 30 pages of soil tests and it's a lot of data. So I understand w where you're going, okay? But the, the way you have to look at things always, I don't care what, what line of work you're in or what thing we're talking about. It's just don't feel the pressure. Just relax. Don't be overwhelmed. Just take one thing at a time. So that's how we try to talk about soil tests all the time. We always start with pH. And so when we look at pH here, what's concerning for us if we're raising corn, soybeans, and wheat is we want to see that soil pH be into the sixes. And the reason why I say corn, soybeans, and wheat is some crops, the pH goal might be just a little bit different, might be higher or lower. Okay, so that's the first thing that I'm looking at. Um, after that, we usually look at cation exchange capacity and we say, all right, well, how light is this ground really or how heavy? And in his case, his average here is probably a 9 CEC. Okay, so that means we've got light ground. So it's not going to take very much lime to fix this issue. Just get a little bit of lime out there and it's fine. But when you have a 9 CEC ground, that tells us you can't hold much of anything. So we often talk about base saturation potassium and that's important, but you have to have both the base saturation number high and the pounds or parts per million of K high. So it, this this field is very, very low on potassium. So we're absolutely looking at potassium because he's got a lot of stuff in the 2%, uh, but not even 100 parts per million. So just flat out not enough K. So those are the first things that really stand out to me. Thanks for the questions, Charlie. Thanks for doing all that work too on your farm. It's, it's really good when we get small acre grids like that to, to see the variability across a farm to help assess what to do next. Thanks for listening to our show today. Be sure to join us again each weekday for more Ag PhD Radio.